Chapter Sixteen of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We move to town. One day, soon after the death of my sister Harriet, my father came home from a meeting of the Grange with a message which shook our home with the force of an earthquake. The officers of the order had asked him to become the official grain buyer for the county, and he had agreed to do it. I am to take charge of the new elevator, which is just being completed in Osage, he said. The effect of this announcement was far-reaching. First of all, it put an end not merely to our further pioneering, but, as the plan developed, promised to translate us from the farm to a new and shining world, a town world where circuses, baseball games, and county fairs were events of almost daily occurrence. It awed while it delighted us, for we felt vaguely our father's perturbation. For the first time since leaving Boston, some thirty years before, Dick Garland began to dream of making a living at something less back-breaking than tilling the soil. It was to him a most abrupt and startling departure from the fixed plan of his life, and I dimly understood even then that he came to this decision only after long and troubled reflection. Mother, as usual, sat in silence. If she showed exultation, I do not recall the fashion of it. Father assumed his new duties in June, and during all that summer and autumn, drove away immediately after breakfast each morning, to the elevator some six miles away, leaving me in full charge of the farm and its tools. All his orders to the hired men were executed through me. On me fell the supervision of their action always with an eye to his general oversight. I never forgot that fact. He possessed the eye of an eagle. His uncanny powers of observation kept me terrified. He could detect at a glance the slightest blunder or wrongdoing in my day's activities. Every afternoon, about sunset, he came whirling into the yard, his team flecked with foam, his big gray eyes flashing from side to side and if any tool was out of place or broken, he discovered it at once, and his reproof was never a cause of laughter to me or my brother. As harvest came on, he took command in the field, for most of the harvest help that year were rough, hardy wanderers from the south, nomads who had followed the line of ripening wheat from Missouri northward, and were not the most profitable companions for boys of fifteen. They reached our neighborhood in July, arriving like a flight of alien unclean birds, and vanished into the north in September as mysteriously as they had appeared. A few of them had been soldiers, others were the errant sons of the poor farmers and rough mechanics of older states, migrating for the adventure of it. One of them gave his name as Harry Lee, others were known by such names as Big Ed or Shorty. Some carried valises. Others had nothing but small bundles, containing a clean shirt and a few socks. They all had the most appalling, yet darkly romantic, conception of women. A girl was the most desired thing in the world, a prize to be worked for, sought for, and enjoyed without remorse. She had no soul. The maid who yielded to temptation deserved no pity, no consideration, no aid. Her sufferings were amusing her disease is a joke, her future of no account. 
From these men, Burton and I acquired a desolating fund of information concerning South Clark Street in Chicago and the riverfront in St. Louis. Their talk did not allure. It mostly shocked and horrified us. We had not known that such cruelty, such baseness was in the world, and it stood away in such violent opposition to the teaching of our fathers and uncles that it did not corrupt us. That man, the stronger animal, owed chivalry and care to woman, had been deeply grounded in our concept of life, and we shrank from these vile stories as from something disloyal to our mothers and sisters. To those who think of the farm as a sweetly ideal place in which to bring up a boy, all this may be disturbing, but the truth is low-minded men are low-minded everywhere, and farmhands are often creatures with enormous appetites and small remorse men on whom the beauty of nature has very little effect. To most of our harvest hands that year, Saturday night meant a visit to town and a drunken spree, and they did not hesitate to say so in the presence of Burton and myself. Some of them did not hesitate to say anything in our presence. After a hard week's work, we all felt that a trip to town was only a fair reward. Saturday night in town. How it all comes back to me. I am a timid visitor in the little frontier village. It is sunset. A whiskey-crazed farmhand is walking barefooted up and down the middle of the road, defying the world. From a corner of the street I watch with tense interest another lithe, pockmarked bully, menacing with cat-like action, a cowering young farmer in a long linen coat. The crowd jeers at him for his cowardice. A burst of shouting is heard. A trampling follows, and forth from the door of a saloon bulges a throng of drunken, steaming, reeling, cursing ruffians, followed by brave Jim McCarty, the city marshal, with an offender under each hand. The scene changes to the middle of the street. I am one of a throng surrounding a smooth-handed faker who is selling prize boxes of soap and giving away dollars. Now, gentlemen, he says. If you will hand me a dollar, I will give you a sample package of soap to examine. Afterwards, if you don't want the soap, return it to me, and I'll return your dollar. He repeats this several times, returning the dollars faithfully, then slightly varies his invitation by saying, So that I can return your dollars. No one appears to observe this significant change, and as he has hitherto returned the dollars precisely according to promise, he now proceeds to his harvest. Having all his boxes out, he abruptly closes the lid of his box and calmly remarks, I said, so I can return your dollars. I didn't say I would. Gentlemen, I have the dollars, and you have the experience. He drops into his seat and takes up the reins to drive away. A tall man who has been standing silently beside the wheel of the carriage snatches the whip from its socket and lashes the swindler across the face. Red streaks appear on his cheek. The crowd surges forward. Up from behind leaps a furious little Scotchman, who snatches off his right boot and beats the stranger over the head with such fury that he falls from his carriage to the ground. I rejoice in his punishment, and admire the tall man who led the assault. The marshal comes, the man is led away, and the crowd smilingly scatters. 
we are on the way home. Only two of my crew are with me. The others are roaring from one drinking place to another, having a good time. The air is soothingly clean and sweet after the tumult and the reek of the town. Appalled, yet fascinated, I listen to the oft-repeated tales of just how Jim McCarty sprang into the saloon and cleaned out the brawling mob. I feel very young, very defenseless, and very sleepy as I listen. On Sunday, Burton usually came to visit me, or I went over to his house, and together we rode or walked to service at the Grove Schoolhouse. He was now the owner of a razor, and I was secretly planning to buy one. The question of dress had begun to trouble us both acutely. Our best suits were not only made from woolen cloth, they were of blizzard weight, and as on weekdays, in summer, our entire outfit consisted of a straw hat, a hickory shirt, and a pair of brown denim overalls. You may imagine what tortures we endured when fully encased in our Sunday best, with starched shirts and paper collars. No one, as far as I knew, at that time possessed an extra, lightweight suit for hot weather wear, although a long yellow linen robe, called a duster, was in fashion among the smart dressers. John Gammons, who was somewhat of a dandy in matters of toilet, was among the first of my circle to purchase one of these very ultra-garments, and Burton soon followed his lead, and then my own discontent began. I, too, desired a duster. Unfortunately, my father did not see me as I saw myself. To him I was still a boy, and subject to his will, in matters of dress as in other affairs, and the notion that I needed a linen coat was absurd. "'If you are too warm, take your coat off,' he said, and I not only went without the duster, but suffered the shame of appearing in a flat-crowned black hat, while Burton and all the other fellows were wearing light brown ones of a conical shape. I was furious. After a period of bitter brooding, I rebelled, and took the matter up with the commander-in-chief. I argued, as I am not only doing a man's work on a boy's pay, but actually superintending the stock and tools, I am entitled to certain individual rights in the choice of a hat. The soldier listened in silence, but his glance was stern. When I had ended, he said, you'll wear the hat I provide. For the first time in my life I defied him. I will not, I said, and you can't make me. He seized me by the arm, and for a moment we faced each other in silent clash of wills. I was desperate now. Don't you strike me, I warned. You can't do that any more. His face changed, his eyes softened. He perceived in my attitude something new, something unconquerable. He dropped my arm and turned away. After a silent struggle with himself, he took two dollars from his pocket and extended them to me. Get your own hat, he said, and walked away. This victory forms the most important event of my fifteenth year. Indeed, the chief's recession gave me a greater shock than any punishment could have done. Having forced him to admit the claims of my growing personality, as well as the value of my services, I retired in a panic. The fact that he, the inexorable old soldier, had surrendered to my furious demands awed me, making me very careful not to go too fast or too far. 
in my assumption of the privileges of manhood. Another of the milestones on my road to manhood was my first employment of the town barber. Up to this time my hair had been trimmed by mother or mangled by one of the hired men, whereas both John and Burton enjoyed regular haircuts and came to Sunday school with the backs of their necks neatly shaved. I wanted to look like that, and so at last, shortly after my victory concerning the hat, I plucked up courage to ask my father for a quarter and got it. With my money tightly clutched in my hand, I timidly entered the tonsorial parlor of Ed Mills and took my seat in his marvelous chair, thus touching another high point on the road to self-respecting manhood. My pleasure, however, was mixed with ignoble childish terror, for not only did the barber seem determined to force upon me a shampoo, which was ten cents extra, but I was in unremitting fear lest I should lose my quarter, the only one I possessed, and find myself accused as a swindler. Nevertheless, I came safely away, a neater, older, and graver person, walking with a manlier stride, and when I confronted my classmates at the Grove Schoolhouse on Sunday, I gave evidence of an accession of self-confidence. The fact that my back hair was now in fashionable order was of greatest comfort to me. If only my trousers had not continued their distressing habit of climbing up my boot-tops, I would have been almost at ease but every time I rose from my seat, it became necessary to make each instep smooth the leg of the other pantaloon, and even then they kept their shameful wrinkles, and a knowledge of my exposed ankles humbled me. Burton, although better dressed than I, was quite as confused and wordless in the presence of girls, but John Gammons was not only confident, he was irritatingly facile. Furthermore, as son of the director of the Sunday school, he had almost too much distinction. I bitterly resented his linen collars, his neat suit, and his smiling assurance. For while we professed to despise everything connected with church, we were keenly aware of the bright eyes of Betty, and noted that they rested often on John's curly head. He could sing, too, and sometimes, with sublime audacity, held the hymn-book with her. The sweetness of those girlish faces held us captive through many a long sermon, but there were times when not even their beauty availed. Three or four of us occasionally slipped away into the glorious forest to pick berries or nuts, or to loaf in the odorous shade of the elms along the creek. The cool aisles of the oaks seemed more sweetly sanctifying after a week of sun-smit soil on the open plain than the crowded little church with its droning preacher, and there was something mystical in the melody of the little brook and in the flecking of light and shade across the silent woodland path. To drink of the little ice-cold spring beneath the maple tree in Fraser's pasture was almost as delight-giving as the plate of ice-cream which we sometimes permitted ourselves to buy in the village on Saturday, and we often wandered on and on till the sinking sun warned us of duties at home, and sent us hurrying to the open. It was always hard to go back to the farm after one of these days of leisure, back to greasy overalls and milk-bespattered boots, back to the society of fly-bedeviled cows and steaming salty horses, back to the curry-comb and the swill-bucket. 
but it was always particularly hard during this our last summer on the prairie but we did it with a feeling that we were nearing the end of it next year we'll be living in town i told the boys exultantly no more cow milking for me i never rebelled at hard clean work like haying or harvest but the slavery of being nurse to calves and scrub boy to horses cankered my spirits more and more and the thought of living in town filled me with an incredulous anticipatory delight a life of leisure of intellectual activity seemed about to open up to me and i met my chums in a restrained exultation which must have been trying to their souls i'm sorry to leave you i jeered but so it goes some are chosen others are left some rise to glory others remain plotters such was my airy attitude i wonder that they did not roll me in the dust though my own joy and that of my brother was keen and outspoken i have no recollection that my mother uttered a single word of pleasure she must have been as deeply excited and as pleased as we for it meant more to her than to us it meant escape from the drudgery of the farm from the pain of early rising and yet i cannot be sure of her feeling so far as she knew this move was final her life as a farmer's wife was about to end after twenty years of early rising and never-ending labor and i think she must have palpitated with joy of her approaching freedom from it all as we were not to move till the following march and as winter came on we went to school as usual in the bleak little shack at the corner of our farm and took part in all the neighborhood festivals i have beautiful memories of trotting away across the plain to spelling schools and lyceums through the sparkling winter nights with franklin by my side while the low-hung sky blazed with stars and great white owls went flapping silently away before us i am riding in a long sleigh to the north beneath a wondrous moon to witness a performance of lord dundreary at the barker schoolhouse i am a neglected onlooker at a christmas tree in burr oak i am spelled down at the sheehan school and through all these scenes runs a belief that i am leaving the district never to return to it a conviction which lends to every experience a peculiar poignancy of appeal though but a shaggy colt in those days i acknowledged a keen longing to join in the parties and dances of the grown-up boys and girls i was not content to be merely the unnoticed cub in the corner a place in the family bobsled no longer satisfied me and when at the sociable i stood in the corner with tousled hair and clumsy ill-fitting garments i was in my desire a confident graceful squire of dames the dancing was a revelation to me of the beauty and grace latent in the awkward girls and hulking men of the farms it amazed and delighted me to see how gloriously madeline white swayed and tiptoed through the figures of the cotillion and the sweet aloofness of agnes farwell's face filled me with worship i envied edwin blackler his supple grace his fine sense of rhythm and especially the calm audacity of his manner with his partners bill joe all the great lunking farmhands seemed somehow uplifted carried out of their everyday selves ennobled by some deep-seated emotion 
and I was eager for a chance to show that I, too, could balance and bow and pay court to women, but, alas, I never did. I kept to my corner, even though Stell Gilbert came to drag me out. Occasionally a half-dozen of these audacious young people would turn a church social or donation party into a dance, much to the scandal of the deacons. I recall one such performance which ended most dramatically. It was a shower for the minister whose salary was too small to be even an honorarium, and the place of meeting was at the Durrells, two well-to-do farmers, brothers who lived on opposite sides of the road, just south of the Grove schoolhouse. Mother put up a basket of food, father cast a quarter of beef into the back part of the sleigh, and we were off early of a cold winter night in order to be on hand for the supper. My brother and I were mere passengers on the straw behind, along with the slab of beef, but we gave no outward sign of discontent. It was a clear, keen, marvelous twilight, with the stars coming out over the woodlands to the east. On every road the sound of bells and the voices of happy young people came to our ears. Occasionally some fellow with a fast horse and a gay cutter came slashing up behind us and called out, Clear the track! Father gave the road, and the youth and his best girl went whirling by with a gay word of thanks. Watchdogs, guarding the Davis farmhouse, barked in savage warning as we passed, and Mother said, Everybody's gone. I hope we won't be late. We were, indeed, a little behind the others, for when we stumbled into the Ellis Durrell house, we found a crowd of merry folks clustered around the kitchen stove. Mrs. Ellis flattered me by saying, The young people are expecting you over at Joe's. Here she laughed. I'm afraid they are going to dance. As soon as I was sufficiently thawed out, I went across the road to the other house, which gave forth the sound of singing and the rhythmic tread of dancing feet. It was filled to overflowing with the youth of the neighborhood, and Agnes Farwell, Joe's niece, the queenliest of them all, was leading the dance, her dark face aglow, her deep brown eyes alight. The dance was the Weevilly Wheat, and Ed Blackler was her partner. Against the wall stood Marsh Belford, a tall, crude, fierce young savage, with eyes fixed on Agnes. He was one of her suitors, and mad with jealousy of Blackler, to whom she was said to be engaged. He was a singular youth, at once bashful and baleful. He could not dance, and for that reason keenly resented Ed's supple grace and easy manners with the girls. Crossing to where Burton stood, I heard Belford say, as he replied to some remark by his companions, "'I'll roll him one of these days.' He laughed in a constrained way, and that his mood was dangerous was evident. In deep excitement, Burton and I awaited the outcome. The dancing was of the harmless donation sort. As musical instruments were forbidden, the rhythm was furnished by a song in which we all joined with clapping hands. Come hither, my love, and trip together in the morning early. Give to you the parting hand, although I love you dearly. I won't have none of your weevilly wheat, I won't have none of your barley, I'll have some flour in half an hour to bake a cake for Charlie. Oh, Charlie, he is a fine young man, Charlie, he is a dandy. 
Charlie he is a fine young man, for he buys the girls some candy. The figures were like those in the old-time money musk, and as Agnes bowed and swung and gave hands down the line, I thought her the loveliest creature in the world, and so did Marsh. Only that which gladdened me maddened him. I acknowledged Edwin's superior claim. Marsh did not. Burton, who understood the situation, drew me aside and said, Marsh has been drinking. There's going to be war. As soon as the song ceased and the dancers paused, Marsh, white with resolution, went up to Agnes and said something to her. She smiled, but shook her head and turned away. Marsh came back to where his brother Joe was standing, and his face was tense with fury. "'I'll make her wish she hadn't,' he muttered. Edwin, as floor manager, now called out a new set, and as the dancers began to form on, Joe Belford hunched his brother. "'Go after him now,' he said. With deadly slowness of action, Marsh sauntered up to Blackler and said something in a low voice. "'You're a liar!' retorted Edwin sharply. Belford struck out with a swing of his open hand, and a moment later they were rolling on the floor in a deadly grapple. The girls screamed and fled, but the boys formed a joyous ring around the contestants and cheered them on to keener strife, while Joe Belford, tearing off his coat, stood above his brother, warning others to keep out of it. "'This is to be a fair fight,' he said. "'The best man wins.' He was a redoubtable warrior, and the ring widened. No one thought of interfering. In fact, we were all delighted by this sudden outbreak of the heroic spirit. Ed threw off his antagonist and rose, bleeding but undaunted. "'You devil!' he said. "'I'll smash your face!' Marsh again struck him a staggering blow, and they were facing each other in watchful fury as Agnes forced her way through the crowd and, laying her hand on Belford's arm, calmly said, "'Marsh Belford, what are you doing?' Her dignity, her beauty, her air of command, awed the bully and silenced every voice in the room. She was our hostess, and as such assumed the right to enforce decorum. Fixing her glance upon Joe, whom she recognized as the chief disturber, she said, "'You'd better go home. This is no place for either you or Marsh.' Sobered, shamed, the Belfords fell back and slipped out, while Agnes turned to Edwin and wiped the blood from his face with self-contained tenderness. This date may be taken as fairly ending my boyhood, for I was rapidly taking on the manners of men. True, I did not smoke or chew tobacco, and I was not greatly given to profanity, but I was able to shoulder a two-bushel sack of wheat, and could hold my own with most of the harvesters. Although short and heavy, I was deft with my hands, as one or two of the neighborhood bullies had reason to know and in many ways I was counted as a man. I read during this year nearly one hundred dime novels, little paper-bound volumes filled with stories of Indians and wild horsemen and dukes and duchesses and men in iron masks, and sewing girls who turned out to be the daughters of nobility, and marvelous detectives who bore charmed lives and always trapped the villains at the end of the story. Of all these tales, those of the border, 
naturally had most allurement. There was the Quaker Sleuth, for instance, and Mad Matt the Trailer, and Buckskin Joe, who rode disdainfully alone, like Lochinvar, rescuing maidens from treacherous Apaches, cutting long rows of death-notches on the stock of his carbine. One of these narratives contained a phantom troop of skeleton horsemen, a grisly squadron which came like an icy wind out of the darkness, striking terror to the hearts of the renegades and savages, only to vanish with clatter of bones and click of hoofs. In addition to these delight-giving volumes, I traded stock with other boys of the neighborhood. From Jack Sheet I derived a bundle of Saturday nights in exchange for my New York weeklies, and from one of our harvest hands, a near-sighted old German, I borrowed some twenty-five or thirty numbers of the Seaside Library. These also cost a dime when new, but you could return them and get a nickel in credit for another, provided your own was in good condition. It is a question whether the reading of all this exciting fiction had an ill effect on my mind or not. Apparently, it had very little effect of any sort, other than to make the borderland a great deal more exciting than the farm. And yet, so far as I can discover, I had no keen desire to go west and fight Indians, and I showed no disposition to rob or murder in the manner of my heroes. I devoured Jack Harkaway and the Quaker Sleuth, precisely as I had played ball, to pass the time and because I enjoyed the game. Deacon Garland was highly indignant with my father for permitting such reading, and argued against it furiously, but no one paid much attention to his protests, especially after we caught the old gentleman sitting with a very lurid example of the damnable lies open in his hand. I was only looking to see how bad it was, he explained. Father was so tickled at the old man's downfall that he said, Stick to it till you find how it turns out. Grandsire, we all perceived, was human after all. I think we liked him rather better after this sign of weakness. It would not be fair to say that we read nothing else but these easy-going tales. As a matter of fact, I read everything within reach, even the copy of Paradise Lost, which my mother presented to me on my fifteenth birthday. Milton, I admit, was hard work, but I got considerable joy out of his cursing passages. The battle scenes also interested me, and I went about spouting the extraordinary harangues of Satan with such vigor that my team one day took fright of me and ran away with the plow, leaving an erratic furrow to be explained. However, my father was glad to see me taking on the voice of the orator. The five years of life on this farm had brought swift changes into my world. Nearly all the open land had been fenced and plowed, and all the cattle and horses had been brought into pasture, and around most of the buildings groves of maple were beginning to make the homesteads a little less barren and ugly. And yet with all these growing signs of prosperity, I realized that something sweet and splendid was dying out of the prairie. The whistling pigeons, the wailing plover, the migrating ducks and geese, the soaring cranes, the shadowy wolves, the wary foxes, all the untamed things were passing, vanishing with the blue-joint grass, the dainty wild rose, 
and the tiger lily's flaming torch. Settlement was complete. End of chapter 16